Thanks, Tim. Well, morning, church. Well, the preach today is about amazing works. So I thought, well, what are amazing works, if you're secularly minded, that is? So, of course, what do I do? I Google it. And interestingly, art came up first and the most frequent, mentioning things like the Sistine Chapel, the Mona Lisa, the Last Supper. And then I thought, well, let's try and be a bit more specific. So this time, the search came up with buildings, with examples such as the Eiffel Tower and the Great Wall of China. No mention of Hadrian's Wall, I might add. So out of curiosity, I thought, well, what about books? What came up? Anna Karina. I probably haven't pronounced it right. Brilliant, I'm told but not most people's easy read. And then we had To Kill a Mockingbird, excellent. And for that matter, so is the film. And George Orwell's 1984. Although sadly, this seems more like reality and a lot less like fiction than when it was first written. So after a bit more effort, I tried nonfiction. These are the sales figures from 1995 Guinness Book of Records. I think after that you have to pay to find the numbers. Results in reverse order. So starting at 190 million books, the Book of Mormon. 800 million, we have the Quran. And the top position was the Bible. Five billion copies. A big difference. Interestingly, for those who like facts, Chairman Mao's Little Red Book scores one billion. So I do wonder what that says about the Book of Mormon. So how is all this relevant? Well, it tells us a few things about what society perceives as amazing works. Firstly, aside from the Guinness Book of Records, which simply records the facts, it's all highly subjective. There are many distinguished lists, but not much agreement between them. And we shouldn't be surprised, because we all have different tastes. It's personal. Second, what is perceived as the best is often about what is currently in fashion. It is highly influenced by public opinion, media, celebs, and social networks. What is in, or popular today, may not be tomorrow. It's a moving target. And thirdly, many of these items would disappear without maintenance and restoration. Paintings must be touched up, buildings maintained, and books rebound. It's not durable and it lacks longevity. And now there's a lot of talk of artificial intelligence. Although, if you've had to deal with Amazon's robots recently in sending stuff back, you know it's got a long way to go. Not to mention our bank either. Well, what surprised me was that the body, the most complex working system in our world, was not included. It's not mentioned. So I found this thing from Bill Gates. The human body is the most complex system ever created. The more we learn about it, the more appreciation 
we have about what a rich system it is. And the National Geographic Society says, the human body is made up of a complex structure of systems that all work together. There are several different levels of organization to this structure, with each level more complex than the last. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. It is our God that has created the most complex and amazing work, not us humans. He created the earth, the sea, the skies, and then man. It follows that if God created us in his image and gave us all these abilities, he must have done so for a reason. Our focus this morning is not so much on the amazing works he has done, but what he wants us to do. He, God, has saved us for a purpose. But why and to do what? Well, that's what we'll be looking and exploring this morning. But first, a short prayer to start. Father God, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to hear your word when so many do not. Please use me, your servant, to deliver your message and make it yours and not mine. Please make us receptive to your work today. And I would pray that you have a special message for each and every one of us. Well, I'm going to start with a little bit of background. And I'm afraid it's a bit about sin. To do amazing works for the kingdom, we first need to be saved from sin. So to set the scene, I'm going to go back to the beginning, to Genesis. God created Adam and then Eve and provided them with the Garden of Eden. And they were to tend to it. There was only one condition. Genesis, in Genesis 2.17, God says, You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You'd think that would be easy, but no. The serpent enters and persuades Eve, who then persuades Adam to eat the fruit. Immediately, they know they've done wrong and are ashamed, but it's too late. God is furious with them and banishes them from the garden. Hence, sin entered the world and has remained here ever since. Like Adam, we're bound to sin, so the question must be, what can we do about it? For some, this may not matter, but for us as Christians, it needs to. And, as always, God has a solution. The good news is we can all be saved. The problem of the sin being inherited in us means that we cannot be used by God unless we, re we renounce our sin. And to do that, we have to be saved. So what can we do? In the days of the Old Testament, it was all about following the commandments. But over time, it changed, and religious, religiosity and legalism took hold. And if that was bad enough, man in, invented new rules to interpret the old rules. 1 Corinthians 6.12 warns us, 
just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get away with, I'd be a slave to my whims. To correct this, something dramatic needed to be done. And God sent his only son, Jesus, to die for our sins. He didn't have to, but he did and left us with a gift. So we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, which is our first passage. And I'm going to use the New Living Translation, so it's going to be slightly different. Starting in verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ, Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It might be short, but there's quite a lot to look at here. First, we're saved by grace. If we are saved by grace, this means that it's not because we are good or deserving. Rather, it is because God is good and gracious. Second, we're saved through faith. To be saved, we must personally decide to respond to God's grace. This is not simply about being good. It's about trusting in God. The salvation we receive is a direct gift from God, not of ourselves. And that being the case, as verse 9 points out, and no one can boast about it because we didn't do it. Third, this is not about simply doing good works. Anyone can do that if they choose to. But it does not make them a believer. And they do not get the benefits of being a Christian and finally everlasting life. Unfortunately, many people still believe that being good and doing good things will get you a place in heaven. Some think there's a halfway house where you get reasonable treatment. I'm really sorry, but it just simply doesn't work that way. You are either in or out. It's sad because I have met many people who think that way. I had a customer and she said she had a belief. There was a cross and a Bible by her bed. And she said she was a good person and liked to treat people fairly. There was clearly some spark, but she did not go to church or read her Bible. No. We regularly discuss it but it always come back to being a good person. She was not alone in that view, and I'm sure you can all think of your own examples. Fourth, Christ sends us to serve him, not in our strength, but in his resources and might. Verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Jesus. So he has us, so he has equipped us to do his good works. Fifth and final point, again in verse 10. We can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's quite clear here 
that not only are we expected to do good works, but God has a plan for us and he knows what works we should do. While the laws of the Ten Commandments are important and need to be upheld, the emphasis has changed. Jesus is talking about salvation through faith, not through rules alone. In my last talk, I spoke of the Reformation and Luther's amazing discovery of salvation by grace through faith and that it is a gift from God and not of works. Luther's point was that we are not saved by doing good works, but we are saved for the purpose of doing good works. Do you see the difference? Good works are not the cause of salvation, but the purpose of it. God saves us so we can go into the world doing good works in his name. And when we do this, it brings glory to God. Matthew 5.16 puts it like this. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everybody will praise your heavenly Father. There's another point here, and it's almost hidden. If it were only those who did good works, who went to heaven, who would qualify? Would it mean only those with the most means, such as the wealthy, those important positions, or those with plenty of time on their hands would be saved? How then would the poor, infirm, marginalized, or those who've done bad things in their lives earn salvation? No, Jesus time and time again makes it clear that the gift of salvation is free to everyone, irrespective of who they are, where they are, or what they have been or done in the past. So the next bit to look at is our gifts. So if God's planned for us to do good works, he must have equipped us. So how does that work? Well, we're going to look at two verses, and the first verse is 1 Peter 4.10. The NIV says, each of you should choose whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And then in 1 Corinthians 12.11, we read, this is from the New Living Translation, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. So the good news is that we've all been given gifts. And just how wonderful is that? So a couple of points here. Our gifts are God-given and he decides what each of us shall receive, not us. Our gifts are meant to be used and certainly not to be kept for our own personal benefit and enjoyment. And my final point, our gifts are meant to be lovingly shared and dispensed to meet the needs of others. The focus of Paul's teaching is not on how many gifts, or even which gifts, a person has. Rather, the point is that Christians should strive to use the gifts God has given to serve others. 
I found there were 20 or so gifts lifted in the Bible, and they're quite varied. And our passage says we have at least one. Some are spiritual, others more practical. It could be that yours, for example, is evangelism, hospitality, or even administration. Or it could be through the gift of making and giving money. James 1.17 reminds us, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Before I go on to the next bit, I have a little quick recap. We started with sin, we looked at how we can be saved, and lastly, how we've been given God, given gifts. Before we see what we can do with these gifts, our hearts need to be in the right place. And for that, we need to have the right attitude. Not surprisingly then, our first gift application is that we should love one another. Well, it sounds easy really, husband and wife, family, and perhaps a few mates. But is that what Jesus really means when he says, love one another? Well, there is a bit more to it than that. Unfortunately, we live in a culture of competition, greed, and I am right, resulting in a society that is polarised on almost every issue. The desire to compete leads to bullying, hate wars, extremism, and in countries fighting each other over influence, territory, commercial advantage, or an ideology. It does not bring peace, and as always, it's the innocent, poor, infirm, marginalized, and weak that suffer the most. The impact of not loving your neighbor is indifference. Of course, we can still disagree or have a view different to somebody else. Loving each other means showing respect, kindness, listening, and accepting a person's right to a different view, not forcing yours on someone else. It's all right to have a different view and debate, but use it as an opportunity to learn. And do, please, please, fact check what you hear. As I was writing this section, Wendy came in and showed me the UCB track for the day, titled, Don't Compete and Don't Compare. It's a bit of a warning and something we need to be on our guard for. It's about human nature and our desire to compete and compare, just as Jesus' disciples did. And that's not helpful, because it blinds us from what is really needed. God alone decides our gifts. No one gift is valued more than another. And that's why it's a mistake to compete or compare ourselves to another person. The problem is that people make a value judgment on what is more important or has higher status. To quote UCB, there is a lesson here. You must move beyond other people's opinions. God made you for a special person. Well, now we've got our hearts in the right place and sorted out, we're ready to serve. And we need to because serving is a practical expression of God's love. It allows us as Christians to express our faith in God 
and to show love for one another. We know from earlier that we've been given at least one gift, and each of us will probably have a different gift. Interesting, but have you ever wondered why? Well, let's look at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14. But as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Well, I have to say, this is one of my favorite passages, because it says so much about what makes our faith important. It tells us our strength coming comes from being united through our faith in Christ. We are most effective when we collectively use our gifts together. We are all equal in the eyes of the Lord, all nations, all people. And this is the opposite of our macho culture, where the hero is always in the singular. Anyone here like watching the um, cooking competitions? No, wonderful. Um, well, my mother did. Oh, Bake Off, right. Well, my mum did, and um, when she was living with us, we watched them with her. And she loved her food, but unfortunately really wasn't interested in cooking at all. And when she did, I have to say, it wasn't a joy to behold. I think my favourite programme was MasterChef. What struck me was this is always about one person competing against another. And yes, chefs are highly, highly competitive. But a large kitchen in a big restaurant does not work like that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a 100% team effort that starts when an order comes in. I've got a table of eight wanting a different dish, each with six to eight items. And they'll all have to be assembled and served at precisely the same time. For a start, there's a clue. They're called a brigade of chefs. It's highly organized. There are different sections, each with its own unique set of skills, pastry, sauces, and so on. And of course, there's the support teams that are doing the prep, pot wash, and so on. Some are prepared in advance and some at a time. It's complex, intense, skilled and time critical. It is a massive team effort. Each person forms a vital part of the whole and is valued for their contribution. Even the humble pot washer, without whom there'd be nothing to cook with. And I can personally remember seeing a head chef make a plate of four fried eggs and deliver it to the humble pot washer to keep him going. When Jesus came to, to earth, the Jews thought the Messiah would come with an army and physically fight and remove the Romans. Not surprisingly, they were disappointed with some saying Jesus should not be the Messiah. This trope of macho man single-handedly coming to the rescue could not be less like how our God works. 
Amazing works are achieved by everybody working together and contributing. We all have a part to play, and no one person is valued more or less than another. Collectively, we are stronger, stronger and able to achieve more. By now, I hope you're thinking, I really want to get on and use my gifts and do amazing works. But what are your gifts? Sometimes it's obvious, but not always. And if that's the case, I would urge you to pray and to talk to one of the elders to help you discern what they are. A couple of thoughts for you. I strongly believe that our past prepares us for the future. If God has decided what gift to give us, then he will have directed our lives and careers, both ups and downs. I have to say, though, what he has in mind for us may not always be obvious at the time, or, for that matter, what we would like to do. We need to be flexible. It's a bit like buying a house. Everyone has a checklist and looks to put a tick in every box. But, of course, it doesn't happen and you have to compromise. Well, so should we when we work for the kingdom. We need to trust in God. You may think, I'm being called to do something, but I'm not really equipped or suited. If God really means you to do that job or take on a role, he will make it work. Recently, I took on the role of treasurer on a voluntary basis. Someone needed to do it, and I felt I was being nudged by God to step up. I don't have any problems with numbers or money, but I'm not a bookkeeper. I last used an accounting system in the, um, <clears throat> a long time ago. I never really understood it. I'm dyslexic, so debits and credits have a, a bit of a problem and seem to mix themselves up the wrong way around. It's been a challenge. Well, it still is, if I'm honest. But my faith tells me that if my God wants me to do this, it will work out. What I'm saying is that if we keep staying within our comfort zone, we will not move forward, either personally or as a church. God has a job for you that nobody else can do, as well as you can do it. When something is right for you, do it and trust God. God to prove that it is right for you in the eyes of others. We need to have the faith that any shortfall will be taken up by our God and he will fix any issues that will inevitably arise. And so to conclude, we've heard today that the amazing news that we're going to have a new leader. And as they say, what a result. It's a real testimony to God's faith in us. And it must mean that he has a plan for us, Jubilee and Shepparton. Our God has enabled this, and we need to be prepared. There could be no better time to step up, step up and use your gifts for the benefit of church and our community. And you'll be pleased to know there's no shortage of opportunities for you. We could do with some help on Sundays with chairs, teas, coffees and welcome. Also, children's work to give those regularly doing it a break to hear the sermon. Maybe you could help. Even if it's only occasionally, 
it makes a difference. You may have noticed that we struggle to get out the newsletter. We need an editor to take it on board, bringing it together. Could this be you? Do talk to us if you think it is. Some things we can't do. For my part, I'm almost at the stage where I have to ask the garden centre to put the compost into the back of the car. So there are several things I physically don't feel able to do. And I'm sure that's true of others here. But it's not all physical. We need prayer to petition God, to find out what he wants us to do and to ask for his help. Here at Jubilee, we are so blessed. We have amazing prayer warriors and those with prophetic vision. If that's for you, please join the regular weekly prayer this week on Zoom. The more prayers we have, the better. The vision for Jubilee is love God, serve one another, and do mission together. Right from the beginning, giving practical help to those in need in the community has always been important. We have a social outreach program. I'm not sure everybody knows quite what church does, so I'm just going to highlight a few of the activities. We have a food bank that covers the TW17 area. And as you've heard from Wendy this morning, we're going to give some Christmas hamper cheer, usually about 60 lots that go out. A year ago, the team started the Bread Cafe, where they now regularly get 10 to 12 people who come in for a chat. An Oak Tree Cafe regularly has over 20 people and sometimes as many as 30. I should also say that the helpers are both Christian and non-Christian. But what is amazing is that some of those who attend the cafes have moved from Oak Tree Cafe to Home Group. Of those, some have come to faith and now attend church. An act of kindness, an act of support, a care for those less fortunate, the opportunity to share our faith, and the result, believers. Now that truly is amazing works. And when we do this, we honour God. Our last word goes to the Apostle Paul, who says in Romans 14, 18, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. And that's why we do it. What can be more important than someone coming to faith? That's the end. Are we having another song? Whilst the band come up, I'll um, just close off in, um, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit and for the spiritual gifts that we have been given by your goodness and grace. Help us to work together. Show love and respect to one another. Please show us our gifts and help us to use them so that we too may do amazing works for the benefit of your kingdom and for your greater praise and glory. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.